0: We are in a study in the book of Revelation. We're going to continue that today. Let me ask you to stand. We'll get right to it this morning. The book of Revelation, the Apocalypse. We are in chapter 14 and uh, looking at the last half of the chapter now, we'll begin our reading in verse number 12. Verse number 12 really sort of ends the previous section that we were in. There was a statement made about God's judgment there. And so verses 12 and 13 are really a contrast, that the fate of the righteous will be different than the fate of the wicked. And so it's connected with that last text, but it's also a thought that bleeds into the next thought, verse number 12. Here is the patience of the saints, here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from Heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed, Are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth? Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, this is the temple of heaven, crying, with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud, thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, the same place as the previous angel did, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came, now this time from a different place, out from the altar, which had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sickle, thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the the great winepress. Of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Our Heavenly Father, I pray the next few moments, Lord, as we consider yet another amazing, astonishing Lord text from the book of the Apocalypse, that, Lord, we might understand what you're communicating. And Lord, where we can, I trust You would help us to make application in the way that we live our lives today. I ask for Your help with this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for standing. The events of Revelation 14 occur or unfold at the waning hours of the seven years of the Great Tribulation. Um, God's trumpet judgments really are ending. The seventh trumpet really pours into the bowl or vile judgments that are yet to come. These are the final judgments of God upon the earth in His last hours. The end of the world is near. And we're talking about the final days, perhaps month or year of the Tribulation. And judgments have fallen in a staccato fashion upon the earth from God. In this great judgment the world has also endured the horrific rise. Of the Antichrist and his horrific um, reign upon the earth, uh, with these demonic hordes that have been released from the abyss upon the world's population. There is no doubt the survivors among humanity, which, by the way, a significant part of humanity has has perished, they're probably thinking that things cannot conceivably become worse. I mean, if you think about all they've been through, that would be in your mind. How could things possibly get any worse? The judgments of God, the reign of the Antichrist, the demonic hordes upon the world, however, they're about to get worse. The bold judgments are imminent, and these are terrifying. And I suppose in terms of spectacular, they are wonderful. Wonderful. But the greatest event is about to occur, and that is the day of the Lord, the return, the bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ on this planet. God's final great judgment will be carried out by our Lord Jesus Christ Himself if He comes at the very conclusion of the great tribulation. He will bring with Him cataclysmic destruction and a great war called Armageddon. This final Decimation and destruction of the planet will destroy all the earthly powers that oppose Christ and His imminent millennial reign. Chapter fourteen presents to us, as we discussed last week, God's final opportunity to be saved. Last week we uh, we talked about the hundred forty-four thousand who will be present upon the earth that will preach the gospel. We talked about these two witnesses, most likely Elijah and Moses, returned who will be preaching the gospel in dramatic fashion. And then really at the conclusion, God God goes to the, the greatest lengths to make sure that everyone can hear. God will send an angel, and He'll fly between heaven and earth, and the Bible says with a loud voice be holding and proclaiming the everlasting gospel. It is humanity's last chance, last opportunity to be saved. And of course, we made application of that last week that for all we know, today could be our last chance, our last opportunity. Life is frail. We don't know what's coming. Life is like a vapor. And and, and we may not even make it home. Today could be our last chance to be saved if we are not. And so, chapter 14 presents this last opportunity and also the final judgment upon all those who reject the angels, the two messengers, and the 144,000. It is the same Judgment that would befall anyone today who would live and then die without the Lord Jesus Christ. This chapter presents to us two great dichotomies, two great contrasts. And the contrasts are the fate of those who die in the Lord versus those who die without Him. And those are very different things. In verses 10 and 11, verses, uh, verses 12 and 13, in verse 10 and 11, we see the judgment, the wrath of God poured upon all the ungodly. And then we see this hope of reward that follows those who serve Christ in verses 12 and 13. Two separate destinies that hinge on the singular choice to trust God through Christ or to reject Him in unbelief. The singular most important decision that a human being can make is whether to trust Jesus Christ or not. Now the verses we are reading this morning offer to us a preview of all the chapters that yet remain in the book of Revelation. It's kind of a fast forward, it's a distillation, it's a summary of the things we're about to read. It kind of, it's this, chapters 12 through 13 and 14 are a bit of an interlude from the trumpet judgments and now before the bowl judgments. And it's like God now casts a forward eye and says, this is a, what's going to happen. It's a, it's a very fine distillation of the remaining chapters of the book. It's a preview. The days of grace, are probably over. The angel has said his message. Then there were two other angels after the one who proclaimed the gospel pronouncing judgment. So, perhaps the days of grace are over. The last opportunity has been passed. And all the earth awaits is God's final judgment, the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, the return of Christ as King. The first time Jesus came as the Son of Man. It was the favorite title of Christ for Himself. It was Uh, describing Himself made in our likeness so that He could reconcile us back to God. The first time He came, He came as a shepherd. He came as a lamb. He came as a teacher. He came as our Savior, gentle and humble. He came to offer His love and salvation through His sacrifice. But this second time that Jesus comes, He is going to come as a king and as a conqueror to lay claim to this planet and the universe once again. This great event of Jesus Christ coming was foretold by the Old Testament prophets. It's described for us in detail, we'll read about it in Revelation chapter 19, but it was foretold by all the Old Testament prophets. And the verbiage here that's used really kind of echoes some of those thoughts that we read, especially in the book of Joel chapter 3, verse 17. And there Joel says, put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. And it's important that we understand what harvest is ripe. And in this context, it's not a harvest of righteousness, but it is the harvest that is ripe with wickedness. At this time, wickedness will be full on the earth. It will have run its full gamut of depravity. The Antichrist will be here. People will be following him. The demonic hordes will be on the planet. And so he says, put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full and the fats overflow. For their wickedness, Joel said, is great. The Bible says the sun and the moon shall be darkened in this moment. The stars will withdraw their shining in this final judgment of the sickle being drawn across the earth. Um, The harvest here again is not for righteous, but for the godless that is full of wickedness called to their final judgment." The imagery here is vivid. Um, it would be something that these people, the seven churches that this letter was originally written to, would have understood. It's this image of grapes and this cluster of grapes that are full, they're just bursting. They, they, are, they are absolutely ripe, but not in a good way, but in a vile and wicked way. And this final judgment shows the reaper coming in, cutting these grapes off, and then placing them in a press. And there in that press they would be tread upon, in this case by the feet of Christ, and the juice and it's graphic, or the blood of humanity of this godless, wicked generation will be splashed upon the garment of Christ and upon the world. Isaiah spoke of this same event in his 13th chapter, verse 11, when he said, And I will punish the world for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. Therefore, will I shake the heavens and the earth, the same thing that Joel just said, and the earth shall be moved from its place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts in that final great day of fierce anger. Isaiah speaks of this again in chapter 63. Wherefore art thou red? And this is speaking of the garment of the one shredding humanity in final judgment. It's graphic, but you get the picture. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel and thy garments like him that treadeth the wine fat. I have trodden the winepress alone, for I will tread them in my anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garment. It's a vision of Christ in the judgment that we just read about in chapter 14. Jesus himself mentions this great day of judgment in Matthew chapter 13. As a matter of fact, let's turn there because. It's it's close. We're at. Turn to Matthew chapter thirteen. We'll read this one together. It's a good place to make a New Testament connection to these Old Testament prophets. Matthew chapter thirteen, and we'll begin our reading in verse number twenty-four. And I just want you to see the connection here of these events in chapter fourteen, because this subject is replete in the Word of God. And Jesus speaking, in another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. This is be weeds. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed in thy field? from whence then hath it tares? Where's all this wickedness? Where's all these weeds coming from? And he said to them, an enemy hath done this. This is Satan. The servant said to him, wilt thou then we go and gather them up? But he said, nay, lest while you gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together. And this is the age that we live in now, growing up together. Let them both grow together till the harvest. In the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, and by the way, we understand that the angels play a large role in this reaping. We see it in chapter 14. So, this is speaking metaphorically of the angels. Gather together the tares and bind them in bundles and then burn them. But gather the wheat, that which is good, into my barn. Now, go to verse 36. He says, then Jesus sent the multitude away. He told this parable, he tells another one. But the disciples come back to this one because that parable fascinates them. Then Jesus said to the multitude away, and he went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, declare unto us the parable of the tares in the field. And he answered and said to them, he that soweth the good seed is the son of man, that's Christ, and the field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. the enemy that sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers, that we read about in chapter 14, are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be at the end of the world. The Son of Man shall send forth His angels, and they shall gather out of His kingdom all the things that offend, and them that do iniquity. And shall cast them into the furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And then shall the righteous shine forth as a son, as the king of the Father. And these words, of course, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. So our text is a preview in Revelation 14 of the fulfillment of these prophets of the Old Testament and Jesus' dire, dire warning in Matthew chapter 13. And it's the contrasting, once again, the fate of the righteous, and by that I mean those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ with the fate of those who reject Him. Now, what I want you to do is look back with me in Revelation 14, and we're going to work through these verses just a few at a time, beginning in verse number 14. And the Bible says, And I looked. It's a, it's a behold moment for John in his vision. Behold a white cloud. And upon the cloud one sat unto like the Son of Man. Now, I can't tell you with definite authority this is the Lord Jesus Christ, but I can tell you this is His common title, that he referred to himself, and we have some clues that this is Christ. And he says, "On upon a cloud, and what's that, like the Son of Man? And he having on his head a golden crown, it's diadem, and in his hand a sharp sickle. We see a vision, in my opinion, of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's coming, but he's coming in judgment as he does. And we see a vision of this coming that's very different than his first coming to the world. And it's different... In, in this way, because the first coming, and by that I mean not, not His birth and nativity, but by that I mean the perusia or the rapture, you and I are waiting a day right now, it could happen today, when Jesus Christ will come back. A trumpet will sound that we will hear. Gabriel will blow the great trumpet. We will be caught up together in the air with Him, described in, this, in the book of Thessalonians. And we will there go under what's called the Bema seat judgment. We will be rewarded for our work and our labors. And so we will be forever with the Lord. And I'm supposing we will watch whatever else unfolds upon the earth. And so that is a really kind of a quiet coming for us. But this coming, the second advent, this is when Jesus comes back again bodily upon the planet. He's coming in judgment. And here he comes with his angelic forces with him. And you talk about might and power. And as he comes, the first thing he's going to do is going to reap the wickedness from the world. And when Jesus comes, he's presented with three characteristics in the text, verse 14. First of all, he comes on a white cloud. Of course, white is a symbol of purity, and the cloud would be a heavenly throne, would be the symbolism there. He comes wearing a golden crown. It's a victor's crown, the diadem. It's a righteous crown, which again identifies him as Christ, in my opinion. And he, he, he's worn this crown to lay claim uh, to this planet. And the Bible says specifically that he's carrying a sharp sickle. I think most of us would have an idea what a sickle is. It's a, it's a threshing instrument. And it, it'd, be, it'd be a long wooden pole. And then at the end of the pole, like instead of an axe head, there'd be like this long um, knife or blade. It could be very long, and it's carried on a long pole. And then a sickle would be thrust in. And the idea is that you were going to uh, gather or harvest a a crop, especially like wheat and or tares, you would swing the sickle, you'd put forth the sickle. And of course, this was an incredibly sharp instrument. And and as that was swung or reaped, all the uh, wheat or weeds would be mowed down and then gathered together in bundles as described in Matthew 13. And if they were wheat, they'd be stored in a barn. And if the tares, they would be burned in the fire. And so this vision shows Jesus Christ on a white cloud wearing a a victor's um, crown carrying this instrument of reaping. And we know from the context of the text He's there to implement judgment upon the earth. Most commentators believe that the swinging of the sickle here is um, really the initiation. You have to understand the idea of judgment here. This is not a it's God's judgment, but it's not to a singular in event. We still have the seven vile or seven bold judgments to come. These come very quickly in succession at the end of the tribulation. They're kind of staccato one, the next, the next, the next. And so most commentators believe that the swinging of Christ of the sickle really initiates these, this final decimation of the evil humanity and the Antichrist to come. And so we, we, we see in verse 15 then look there with me. And another angel came. So Christ is on the cloud. He's, he's ready to judge the world. And, an, and another angel comes, verse 15, out of the temple. So this is before the very throne room of God, crying with a loud voice. He's carrying the orders of God. To him that sat on the cloud, thrust in thy sickle and reap. For the time has come for thee to reap this wicked harvest that is ripe upon the earth. And So this final angel, or this, or this fourth angel comes He's mentioned. Now, this is in chapter 14 for context. There's been the first angel that had the gospel. A second and third angel came and, and issued judgment or warned of judgment. This angel comes and tells Jesus from orders of God to reap or to begin his judgment. And now a fourth one comes and really initiates this judgment. He comes from that, he comes from the throne room of God. He, he comes carrying instructions, if you will they're known by Christ, but this is a formality, to thrust in thy sickle and reap. And then look with me in verse number 16, and he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle the earth. So this is judgment falling. In the earth this wickedness was reaped. The idea of reaping here is judgment. It's it's a bigger idea of the tares being gathered and burned. It happens in a process and so this, this occurs. This event initiates symbolically the final judgments described for us in the ensuing chapters of Revelation. Um, This would include these incredible boils and plagues that fall upon humanity. This is just misery upon misery. We'll read about that soon. We see the ocean. We've seen some devastation by wormwood and other things upon those waters, but this it's incredibly graphic. The earth's oceans turn to blood. Um, the rivers ensue and turn to blood. The sun exceeds its boundaries. Thinks solar flare. And the Bible says that as the sun exceeds its boundaries, it scorches the earth. Um, I've had sunburns before. This is going to be worse. Because this, this burns the planet. It doesn't, at this moment, kill everyone, but it's, um, it's, it's horrific. Total darkness falls on the earth. You know, darkness is scary. And, this is, and this, this is, all this is building up to the return of Christ, this is just terrifying. So the earth is, the sun has blown its boundaries, scorched the earth, and that's ensued by darkness. The Bible tells us the Euphrates River is dried up. So we know that this darkness isn't permanent. And the Euphrates River is very symbolic in biblical imagery, but the idea here is, that, and if you look at the geography maybe this afternoon, the Euphrates River forms a pathway. There's some natural boundaries into the Palestine, but this Euphrates River is dried up. It really makes like a path. So it makes a pathway. The Bible tells us that the Armies from the north and from Asia will file in through this. See, these are armies come at the behest of Antichrist to destroy Jerusalem. Remember, during this whole time, as the judgment's God of falling, Satan is trying to, to squelch the last efforts of Christ to rule under reign. He's still in this delusion. He was from the very beginning that he can stop Christ from reclaiming the planet. And so, this forms a passage for the armies of the world to gather in a place called uh, the Valley of Med- Medigo, Valley of Jehoshaphat. We call it Armageddon, the Valley of Armageddon. And in that place, in these judgments, this is where Jesus Christ is going to come. and It's going to look like Israel's going to be destroyed. But the Lord comes and He, we call it the, the, the Battle of Armageddon. It's no battle. It's what we say, there's no battle. And he just just destroys them in judgment. This is all included in this sickle. And he destroys them, saving Jerusalem. In verse seventeen, a fifth angel appears again from the court of heaven, and he now he bears resemblance to the Son of Man on the white cloud. He carries a sickle as well. A fifth angel appears from the courts of heaven, the temple, having a sharp sickle also. Now, verse 18, let's read it. It's fascinating. This is just, to me, it's fascinating. And verse 18, and another angel. There's a lot of angels in this text. And another angel came out from the altar. And, you know, these, these words, I think, have relevance. Those two angels came from before the temple, the throne room of God. But this comes through the heavenly, the heavenly um, altar. Okay, look at it for a second. The altar was a place, remember, where sacrifices were made, but the altar was also the place where incense was burned and prayers were received. Prayers were offered at the altar. Okay, that's the ultimate context. It was a place of fire. Fire was always on the altar. and There was a, priest, a job of the priest to keep it always burning. So I want, I want to get some context for what's being read here. And so another angel came out from the altar, this place of fire where prayer and incense and prayer was gathered, which had power over fire. And so the idea of fire here, I think, is the fire on the altar. And he cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle." And this is the angel that has the sickle saying, "'Thrust in thy sharp sickle.'" So this is a second judgment. And now he, he talks about these grapes that we talked about earlier from the Old Testament, and Jesus talked about. "'Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the cluster of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Wickedness is replete.'" So I, I'm going to stop here. The next verse says, and the angel did so. We've had one judgment, and I believe that this first judgment initiated these bold, vile judgments. But if we, if we read this now, and I'll do it in a moment, in, in the context of the next few verses, we read this judgment coming where uh, the examples like graves being in a press, in a bowl, and then tread upon, and the blood of the juice coming forth. What's happening here? Again, these are images that, uh, you know, aren't super obvious to all of us, so um, be careful what I say, it's 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 my thought. Is the altar here, I I believe it's in chapters 6 and 8 of Revelation, we see in that place the altar, the same altar referenced here, and we see that the prayers of the saints ascend to the, what place? The altar. And the martyrs are underneath the altar, I believe in chapter 8 or 9, it's memory, and they're offering prayers. And what are their prayers? In chapter 6 and 8, the prayers of the saints are to avenge the earth. They're praying. God, how long until you avenge us? God, how long until wickedness is wiped out? God, how long until righteousness reigns? These are prayers. You, You know, we might have some prayers like that there. Lord Jesus, come back quickly. You ever ask the Lord to come back? You might be part of the, the, the you could have some fire up there. Is, can I say it that way? We, we, have, we, we may have some embers up there that we prayed. My prayers are going to the altar before the throne of God. Lord, I want you to come back. Lord, how long is this evil going to last? Lord, how long until you come back? I, I, I'm not a martyr, but if I was, Lord, how long until you avenge avenge us. I believe that this angel is carrying the very prayers of the saints, and then our prayers are being fulfilled in this moment. Now, that's a thought because this is where he's coming from. The others came from the orders of God. This angel is coming from the altar of God. And he's, he's bringing all this together. It's fascinating. The sixth angel comes right from the temple, before the altar in heaven, and he tells the angel with the sickle to thrust in and reap and judge these clusters of vines that are full and evil, that are fully ripe, and take them to the wine press of God. Okay, so we've already, we know when we get to this point that God has already, the seven bold judgments will ensue when we get to this final place. And so, this act of the angel, after the act of the Son of Man, is different. Most scholars believe that his actions initiate the gathering of all the world's armies to this final great battle of Armageddon. Remember this final plague in the tr- uh, of the bowls is to drop the Euphrates River. And so now we have this other angel bringing in judgment in this act. And so now I believe that this is the, the, the judgment act that brings all the armies of the world together in this great valley. This final last place of God's unimaginable wrath and fury that's described for us in the Old Testament being poured out upon humanity. It's coming from the altar. It's the place where we have prayed for God to come back. This, if you will, this last judgment is fueled by our prayers. And so we're going to read in a moment, these armies are destroyed. In verse 19, look there. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth. So, gathering all these together, in my opinion, gathering into the valley of Armageddon. And gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great wine press. The imagery here is all uh, kind of graphic. So, uh, stop. Wine press. What's a wine press? A wine press was a trough. So, think like, you know, most of you would know like a big cattle trough. It's a... Uh, it's, you know, a longer kind of bowl, and um, in ancient Palestine they used presses, wine presses, or these troughs, and, and they'd been long, and they were often made of like rock or stone, maybe wood. And so the idea is they they go out to the harvest, and they'd gather all the grapes, and gather the grapes, and gather the grapes, and they'd place them in the wine press. Okay, so all the grape from the wine press. Now, what's going to happen next? When you're making juice or wine from it, you know, it seems like a benign act. But it's an illustration, because it's graphic, that when the people stepped in to the wine press, because they used their feet to do it, they'd be treading upon the ripe grapes. And it would burst forth its juice or fruit, you with me? And, you know, again, it's fruit, but it's judgment. And this is the imagery God is using. So, angels, sickle goes like this, gathers the armies together in this great winepress of God that we know to be something called the Valley of Armageddon. I've had the privilege um, to stand atop Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel was the mountain that you know Elijah went to, and he called down fire from God there. You know, it was a great battle um, with the prophets of Baal. It's fascinating. From Mount Carmel, there's this observation point, and you look out, and what do you see before you but an, an incredible swath of the Valley of Medigo, Megiddo. It's the Valley of Armageddon. And it looks just like that. It's an enormous valley. And I suppose from a certain vantage point, it looks just like a wine press. And one day, it's going to be full. And not of grapes. But of sinful, ripe wickedness. Humanity. And the sickle goes... And the armies gather in defiance of God. And then Joel and Isaiah and Zechariah, all these prophets imagery is now the winepress of God. And wherefore the red upon thy garments ask of Christ. I've come from the place of my great indignation, my great wrath, the outpouring of God's angst against all the wickedness of the world. It is incredibly graphic. And I suppose it's intended to be, but we have a bowl approximately 180 something miles long, which just happens to coincide with the number of furlongs mentioned in our text. And it's an imagery of Christ treading the enemy's blood. Just as the the, the wine presses were filled with the blood of the grapes 180 miles, 1,600 furlongs. I, I, I don't do numerology, I'm not qualified, but this is a derivative of four and tens, which in the Bible are used as for judgment and the completeness of judgment. So for those who'd be interested, I suppose that's there to study. But the point is the text graphically depicts two judgments. The interpretations aside, I can tell you this. The text is about a destiny of the wicked. Is that fair? Yes, okay. I've lit my color commentary, but it's about this it's about judgment and wickedness coming to its final end and conclusion. And this is its only climactic conclusion. So great is this judgment upon the Antichrist. And humanity in this moment, that the Bible describes, and I don't know how much of this is hyperbole and, and metaphorical, but the Bible says in some places that the blood will flow as high as a horse's bridle. That, that imagery is, is really replayed over and over. If you, you read the Old Testament, you, you'll read about blood flowing so high. I, I don't know that it means that blood will flow that high for the 180 miles, but I, I'm assuming this that in God's final treading of wrath upon the winepress of a wicked humanity, that there will be places in the valley of Armageddon where blood will be as high as a horse's bridle." That is destruction and decimation and that is judgment. That is terror. That is an awesomeness that's beyond comprehension. And it ought to make us think. So, wow. I think all this is communicated, so we'll know. But I, I think what God wants us to do, because in Matthew 13, he says this, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. There's something beyond the graphic details that Christ wants us to know. And is that is this, is that humanity has one of two outcomes. That's it. We're all living life a different way, different places around the world, doing different things. We're all on a journey, but the road we're on only leads to one of two places, and this is one of them. Now, this is the way it ends for the people who live in this time, but for those who die without the Lord, they're going to die, and they're going to receive a judgment that is infinitely worse than this physical one. It's an eternal torment. It's a judgment that goes on and on and on in the fury of wrath of God against sin, and it's called, it's called hell. And these people still face that same future fate, by the way, at the end of the millennial reign. The point, I believe, is the text outcomes. It's a story of the end of the world and the consequences for the way we live in this world. So the story and its future events were written to the seven churches serving as both instruction and warning. And it's warning that we need to hear is that our life is gonna have an outcome after death. Our life's gonna be judged. And again, it's gonna be judged there, or it's gonna be judged like this. That's your choice. But it's, you only get those two options. To have God judge your sins. Listen, all this fury that fell on these people and all the fury of hell fell on Christ on the cross. That's how we can be saved. It's the only reason we can be saved. It's not that our sins are just forgiven. They are, but they're forgiven on the basis that all this fury of the wrath of God fell on Christ for us. My sins were placed on that cross for the purpose of Him experiencing my hell so I don't have to. So, what I want to do, I want to go back to verse 13. And I want you to look at a phrase there with me. The Bible says, I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. In other words, my wrath was, I died in Christ. I died, he went to hell for me. I died in him, and I'm blessed because of that. Why am I blessed? Because I'm not experiencing this. That makes me blessed. Blessed are they which die in the Lord from his forth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest. Now think about what these people endured. Rest is going to be a big deal to them. And then this phrase, for their labors and their works, follow them. Here he's speaking about what's called the perseverance of the saints. This is what we might call eternal security is mentioned here. And uh, those who are in the Lord he is able to keep and they'll stay faithful to the end, even through all these things. But then at the end when they die, the Bible says their works, their deeds follow them. In other words, verse 10-11, the recompense of the reward for those who die without the Lord is this judgment and then hell, but the recompense of reward for those who die in the Lord is rest and the incredible opportunity for all they've done for Christ to be rewarded. They're saved, but more than that to receive unique and specific, singular praise from God for your service. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that means. I just know it's in the text. My works follow me. And you might have that too. I'm just got to be in heaven. We're going to stand before our Savior one day. You're not going to have that attitude then. I don't know if regrets going to exist on the BMC seat judgment. I don't have any idea. I don't understand that. I, I just know there's something that he's speaking about that is intended to be a motivation beyond just keeping me out of the negative outcome that's supposed to inspire me for the most positive one that I can possibly receive. There's a recompense. A work is going to follow me. These people in the chapter 14, their works followed them. Did it not? It's going to follow them, their life and their choice for rejecting Christ is going to follow them into hell. Is that fair? You can't escape your life. You can't escape your life choices. They will follow you after death. The old phrase, you can't take it with you? Oh, yes, you can. (laughs) You won't take a dime with you, but you'll take everything that you've ever done with you in death. And so the recompense of the reward for those who are unsaved is, is horror. I, I have the blessing of having my sins forgiven. Like I, I, the Bema Seat isn't about judgment in that way. Okay? Wrath is for the wicked. But God still examines my life today. That's why we, we want to strive to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. We we complete yes, our, our life. So the Bible describes it this way. I, I, this, I, I feel this strongly. I'm going to have a hard time saying this, but in the Greek, the idea of deeds follow means that deeds accompany. They're part of us. That our, the, the deeds done in life. They, they accompany us. They they walk with us into our destiny after death. Hell, we, we we get that. But but heaven. The point is that what we do in life follows. And there's consequence for us. It, it's intended to be positive. See, it's our decision to accept Christ or not, and reject it. And that singular decision takes you to one of two places: heaven or hell. Second Corinthians five, in speaking to believers on death, Paul said, "To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord." So that's comfort. But then he goes on to say this: Wherefore. Words, that's not the end of this conversation. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted. The idea mean, is to be pleased. We, we may please Christ with our life, because that's going to be acknowledged as the Bema seat. For we must all appear before the judgment. The word judgment means Bema. That's, this is the judgment of the believers who are saved. And the word judgment has a negative connotation. It just means Evaluated. For we almost appear before this judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body during his life. Now, I can't tell you exactly what that means. I just know this, is that Josh is going to die and go to heaven and his deeds are going to follow him and God's going to acknowledge those with some kind of reward. And I can't tell you it's going to be the exact same as your reward. I don't have clarity on that. I just know this, it's going to matter to you and it's going to matter to you. Right. It's going to matter to every one of us who stand before Christ. And I have no idea what that looks like in eternity. I just know it's a reality because the Bible says we're going to be rewarded according to the way we lived our life. And for the Christian, I'm talking about post-salvation that's right. because our sins are forgiven. That's right. yeah, that's right. And it says, according to that he, that he hath done whether it be good or bad. And so in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul goes on and says, you know, some people's life are going to be like this. They're going to to come to the bema seat, and it's going to look like gold, silver, and precious stones. And it's going to be other people at the bema seat of Christ, and it's going to look like wood, hay, and stubble. And the way that you and I live between now and the day we die, the day we meet the Lord, we are either accumulating wood, hay, or stubble, or gold, silver, and precious stones. And you say, I just want to get into heaven. I understand human sentiment. is going to matter to you on that day. I can't tell you how it's going to matter to you. I can't, I can't tell you if there's going to be regret or not. My, my guess is there's going to be some intellectual understanding of the reward we could have had versus the one that we're receiving. I just know this. I want all the, if it pleases God, I want all the, Gold, silver, and precious stones, I can have. You see, destiny is coming for all of us. Take your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Let, let, let me give you a bigger preview of Revelation 14 because 14 is just a very encapsulated summary. Revelation 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. The war I've just talked about. His eyes were a flame of fire, on his head were many crowns, and he had the name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture, dipped in blood, We've talked about that. And his name is called the Word of God. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. I love that thought. Clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his, marth, his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with, that with it he should smite the nations, the events I've just talked about. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. He treadeth the winepress of the fiercest of wrath of Almighty God. It's just said another way with the same event. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. What an incredible ending that has there. I would encourage you today to think this through soberly, that this event's coming for those who don't know Christ. Christ. And I want to ask you to consider your works and your deeds. You see, our works play no role in our salvation. You cannot earn your way into heaven. You can't earn forgiveness. So, we don't believe our works have anything to do with entering into heaven or salvation. But I'll tell you this, our works, post-salvation, follow us have take an exhaustive study to present you what the rewards of Christ may look like, I can just say this with absolute certainty, they follow you. And they either burned up and rendered unrewardable, or they found precious in God's sight, rewarded and commended. Life has consequences. Works follow us, they define us, and they determine who we are. The king is coming, and so too is his recompense. Verse 12 of chapter 22. And behold, I come quickly. Our life's but a vapor. Even if we die, he's coming quickly. And behold, I come quickly. And the next words, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. That's why we should work. Why it is daytime? The Bible says. We've got to be wise and circumspect, our heads on a pivot, looking around, buying up and redeeming the time. Why? Because it's going to follow us into heaven. I don't know about you. I really, really want to hear, well done. My good and faithful servant. Let me ask you, stand.